Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. As the conflict in Ukraine continues and lives and livelihoods are disrupted, the challenge of ensuring people have access to income and support grows. The government of Ukraine has been working to continue payments of regular social protection schemes, including pensions, and launched emergency payments in active conflict zones. And with donations flowing in, international agencies are also looking for ways to provide cash-based humanitarian assistance. In today's episode, we'll talk about a new UNICEF program just launched to provide emergency payments to conflict-affected families. But we'll also ask the question, in a country like Ukraine, why are international actors still setting up parallel systems for humanitarian response and not working through the local systems already in place? In this interview, I'm joined by Gabriele Erba, who is a beneficiary data systems specialist at UNICEF, and Paul Harvey, a partner with Humanitarian Outcomes and co-director of the Basic Research Program, which examines social assistance in protracted crises. Welcome, Paul and Gabriele. And thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today. Thank you. Paul, can I start with you? Can you give us a brief sense of what social protection in Ukraine looked like prior to conflict breaking out? Sure. So I mean, one of the first things to say is that conflict really broke out in 2014. So in some sense, Ukraine has been at war for eight years or more. There's an intensified conflict since February. But so it's a complex mix. It's a, it's a middle-income country. It's a post-Soviet country. It's been at war since 2014. It's been coping with the consequences of COVID for the last two or three years. So you've got a mix of contributory and non-contributory benefits. You've got a mix of means-tested and categorical benefits. You've got you know, things like pensions and child benefits and unemployment insurance and health insurance and so on and so forth, overlaid with the response to the conflict, overlaid with the response to COVID. Pensions are by far the biggest expenditure item. They make up more than 50% of what's spent on, on social assistance. And social protection is significant. It makes up 23% of, of all overall government spending. So quite a lot's been spent, but the amounts that individuals are getting are quite small because transfer values haven't been adjusted. So the transfer value has been eroded by inflation. So they're useful, but they're not enough to prevent serious poverty. And what do we know about the challenges that have already started to emerge for the government to maintain these social protection benefits, to continue to pay them out as the acute stage of conflict has erupted? I mean, clearly, the challenges are huge in terms of physical damage and, and, and disruption from the conflict in the areas most affected by conflict, you know, whether or not. People are able to still get to banks, whether banks are still open, whether post offices are still open, whether ATMs are still operating, you know, all those sorts of challenges are, are very present. There's uh, you know, clearly challenges to connectivity, to, to the ability to be able to you know, register online for, for new payments, to check if you've received your payments, you know, all, all of those sorts of things. But also the, the challenges in terms of the sort of staff and human resources need to, needed to operate a social protection system. The, uh, you know, the community social service centres, the social workers, their ability to both get paid and to carry on doing their jobs and to do all the massive new challenges, both sort of protection and, and uh, assistance related um, arising from the conflict. So uh, there's a huge set of challenges. There's also been a surprisingly sort of resilient, adaptive response from the part of the government in, in, in maintaining payments. And I guess we'll come to that in a minute. But Gabriele, you want to come in on the challenges? 
Sure. Uh, very briefly, I think that you covered on the challenges quite well. There are many different degrees of severity with which uh, the conflict has hit Ukraine. And of course, in besieged area, Mariupol or Kharkiv or Kiev at the height of the shelling, the challenges of accessing payment or even spending those payments were enormous. Look at the broader picture of Ukraine. I think that the figures that we have is a figure of great resilience of the government. So the government in the very early phases of the response was able to leverage one of its digital investments from the Ministry of Digital Transformation, which is called DIA. DIA is an application that allow citizens to upload their documents and to apply for certain social benefit. And it's a unique asset as it counts already 15 million unique records on file, a great tool to reach people in need. So that was the rapid response to come up with a new service for unemployment benefit that received 1 million applications that were paid with an existing digital delivery mechanism there and then. In terms of challenges, I think that what I've heard were that for contributory um, social protection program like pensions, elderly people who receives a lot of this pension through the post office had accessibility challenges in particularly in conflict area. But other than that, the image that we got was an image of great resilience and business as usual from the social protection side. It's also worth saying that, that, that there's always been challenges for Ukrainian citizens in Russian-occupied areas ever since 2014 in Luhansk and Donetsk. They've rarely been able to access payments unless they've been able to cross front lines, and, and, and that's been problematic. And there's much less transparency over the assistance that the Russian government's been providing in areas it's been occupying either since 2014 or more recently. And so whilst the Russian government has been providing some assistance, what that is and how it's working is, is much less clear. Gabriele, UNICEF has been working with the government of Ukraine to implement a new emergency cash transfer, I believe it's for war-affected families with children, in a remarkably short time over the last few weeks. Can you tell us a little bit about the program, what it's providing to people and how it came together? First of all, I, I would be humble on timing, even as we try our best. I think that the level of preparedness that we should aim for should always be bigger. But indeed, I think we moved fast and we moved fast for a number of reasons, including our um, existing relationship with the government. The work that we had with the Ministry of Social Protection allow us to fast track certain discussion on the target beneficiary that we were looking at for this emergency program allowed us to explore whether vertical or horizontal expansion were at all a possibility in the time frame that we were looking at for this emergency cash assistance program. And also the um, relationship that we had with the ministry allowed them to frankly and transparently say, go ahead for the sake of rapidity with a parallel system in coordination with us on the target uh, that you're going to reach. We tried to design what would have been the most appropriate uh, target with the information that we had available at that time. We used a, a poverty analysis that UNICEF did on families with children in 2020, if I'm not wrong. And we were looking at the income gap between these categories of people and the subsistence level. And the income gap was larger for families with three children or more. And it was quite large for families uh, that were single added. So that was our initial target. As a result of discussion with the government, we parked temporarily the single added household 
and we decided to focus on the increased needs of families with children with disability in conflict. And of course, this was also being informed by the budget that we had available at the time. And therefore, we are focusing on large families with three kids and more, of which at least one between zero and two. So it's de facto a, a vertical expansion in parallel of their um, child benefit uh, program and families with at least one child with, with disability, which is roughly, uh, we're looking at 52, 55,000 households nationwide, despite uh, the fact that, of course, this is motivated by the need to address the additional vulnerabilities as a result of the war. We really wanted to have a, a, as much as universal approach to targeting as possible, and not only those that are in conflict-affected areas or those that uh, were displaced as a result of the conflict. Another factor that really helped fast-tracking the setup of the project was the existence of an outline of a call center that we had in partnership with the government for child rights-related services that we could expand to, to include responding to the needs of the beneficiary when it comes to registering to UNICEF cash transfer program. And also the level of digitalization of Ukraine was a very important factor for us to set up the program very fast, as for the first time globally, UNICEF used a self-registration system online where beneficiary could self-apply um, for this benefit. Other factors, of course, include all of the great work that humanitarian agencies within the cash working group framework have been doing on calculating the benefit amount. And I think this all goes into the various variables that allowed us to move fast. So when you were saying initially that you did some assessment with the government of Ukraine around looking at the existing systems and thinking about whether parallel or vertical expansion were possible, what were the factors that meant that you or UNICEF was not able to simply top up existing benefits or, or work through the existing system? So UNICEF's first option to deliver humanitarian cash transfer is always expanding government system. And in the initial discussion that we had with the Ministry of Social Policy, it became clear quite immediately that there were no policies and procedures to be able to design a rapid response that was going to expand either vertically or horizontally on their existing program. And by policies and procedures, I mean the legal framework to receive the funds and to top up and to create the procedures that allows to increase the amount of money received or to rapidly include beneficiary in the system. Hence, the understanding of the government that in light of the humanitarian needs, it was important to go in parallel for a short period of time with a mindset of investing in creating these policies and procedures and also transiting the scale load back into the systems. My understanding is that the platform for self-registration that you mentioned launched at the end of March. Are you seeing high levels of registration? How does payment seem to be going? Allow me to be very transparent. So at the beginning of the self-registration, of course, we had a huge amount of uh, registration. Every two seconds, we had a family registering at peak hours, uh, 15,000 families in the first day. Um, and, and of course, we had our challenges in keeping the system up and running. And I think our monitoring of social media was very useful in understanding the challenges that applicants were, were facing. As we moved forward, now we have received in the last 10 days 
I believe, uh, 75,000 applications from families. And we have not made payment yet. Actually, the, the test payment is going out uh, today, hopefully. So I, I hope that this podcast brings us good luck. There are a number of operational challenges linked to the additional security measure that we have taken from an information security and data protection point of view. There are a number of challenges linked to setting up a data collection system that's to link with our global management information system and the data mapping around it. But we are really positive that in the course of April, we will be able to address these challenges and pay the caseload. Another important operational challenge that I think is worth mentioning is for the first time, we are not using professional enumerators to collect data. So just as much as professional enumerators have challenges on data quality, when we request beneficiary themselves to uh, input data, there is a whole set of uh, data quality issues that needs to be addressed, hence the importance of scaling up on the, on the call center capacity and all the time that it will imply waiting for these little issues to be addressed in order to allow payments to take place. That's interesting because I think you mentioned there are a number of criteria, for example, you know, large families with three or more children. Through this registration process, are people expected to provide evidence or proof or sort of corroboration of some of these claims? Or is it really very much opt-in and, you know, recognising that the needs are are great? Um, Better to respond in error rather than miss people out of an abundance of caution. I think this is the most important question that you could be asking. And I believe that uh, it would be important to have an answer or start a reflection that should be nurtured by not only agencies responding to this crisis, but by donors, uh, by public and private donors contributing to this, by colleagues from scholars and from the academia. We had to strike um, a balance between the risk mitigation measures that we were taking to ensure that we were hitting our target, but also mitigating the risk of, of exclusion. So this is an evolving process. And at the beginning, for example, we recommended beneficiary to upload birth certificate for the children because that was the targeting criteria to be entitled to receive the benefit. But we were more tolerant on certain other type of data around the payment mechanism, whether it's a bank account or whether it's a debit card. And of course, the payment mechanism results into different level of know your customer regulations, and therefore also risk mitigation measures. At the moment, I think we were having loose enough measure of control to allow massive application. And now what we are seeing is that we are going to be able to pay less people at a a fast pace because we will need to reach back to them and complement this information to make sure that we can um, mitigate sufficiently the risk of inclusion error to make sure that we can reach as many people as possible. But I think that it's a reflection that should be ongoing and uh, the level of risk appetite in this situation should be informed by also discussion with the government of Ukraine, with whom we are having regular discussion on this topic with donors and, and fellow humanitarian agencies. Thank you. If I may, just one more question to you, Gabriella. You mentioned before that you were able to receive quite active real-time feedback via social media, particularly around when the registration portal was first launched. Can you give me a sense of how that worked, what people were saying and how you were able to respond if, if challenges were being identified in that way? Well, to be very transparent, again, 
the majority of the comments were at the very beginning very angry about the fact that it was taking long time to register or that the system, the connectivity was not great. They could not upload the picture. And these are normal challenges that, that people face when they engage with digital system. So we kept on responding on trying to adapt the system to make it faster, to make it easier to use. And of course, to try to complement the registration process with our implementing partners. We are partnering with a series of, of NGOs to support those beneficiaries that have challenges, either remotely uh, with telephone or in person, particularly uh, for the beneficiary that were staying in, in collective centres. Thank you. It's really helpful and interesting insight into just how challenging these systems are to put in place and the real human factor, which means that people, especially people in, in crisis distress who don't have their usual resources handy, there's, there's a lot to factor in there in terms of designing programs and, and making them actually work. So I also hope that this podcast recording brings luck for the first tranche of payments. Paul, you're co-director of the basic research program, um, which is looking at social assistance in protracted crises. And so I know that you've been thinking about how social protection programs and humanitarian response are designed in these kinds of crisis situations. What are your reflections on the situation that Gabriella has described and how organisations like UNICEF can be thinking through these challenges over the next period? Sure. So, I mean, as Gabriella noted, in an ideal world, I think what international organisations would be doing would be enabling the government of Ukraine to, to top up in its and existing benefits. You know, th this sounds like a sensible second best option, but it's definitely second best because even working as fast as, as UNICEF and others have, you know, it still takes one. Crosswoods, so the, the best payments will go out today and, and, and so people will start getting payments in, you know, towards the end of April, May, when the invasion started in February. And so I guess there's two things to reflect on. One's political, one's technical. So in a political sense, Ukraine is very unusual, both because it's a middle-income country in Europe, but also because it's a government that Western donor governments trust enough to be providing several billion dollars worth of arms. So one feels that this presents an unusual opportunity to just provide sort of direct budget support to the government of Ukraine so that it can increase benefit payments. And, and that could be you know, bilateral, it could be multilateral. It, it feels like there should be a way to enable that to happen. It, it feels actually like it should have happened quicker than it has. And so the role of the UNICEF and WP and others should be more a gap-filling role and figuring out where the, you know, the role of international actors is in addressing needs that, that the state is unable to. As I say, Ukraine is unusual. You know, it, it, in income terms, in other protracted crises, it's comparable to Iraq or Yemen or Libya. But the ability of main donor governments to work with and through the government of Ukraine is greater because of the politics of the situation. And then I guess the other reflection is the technical one, that the, the issues Gabriele was talking about in terms of the sort of legal due diligence, you know, just how money flows through accounts and, and what is and isn't possible is really important and can be a real sticking point. And so as ever is an argument for sort of preparedness and contingency planning. So I, you know, the, the, the mix of the, the politics and the technical aspects um, presented an unusual opportunity in Ukraine but, but one that, you know, still needs to be seized in terms of international actors thinking about how they work with and in relation to government systems. Gabriele, can you give us a sense of how people are using some of these social protection benefits, how they're using these payments 
in active conflict zones in Ukraine. It's hard to get a picture externally, perhaps around things like our markets functioning. Do you have a sense of how families will be using these payments? One of the first things that we did when the search team for humanitarian cash transfer arrived in Ukraine was to bank on the network of youth reporters, that it's an initiative that UNICEF has globally to engage with youth. Actually, the pool of youth reporters also covers quite generally people from 20 to 30 years of age. And we basically can send them a set of questions and we ask them about financial assistance during war. First of all, to understand whether cash assistance was still the preferred modality and whether this was changing from one oblast to the other, but then also to get a, a sense of what the needs were and what they were using existing cash assistance. It was not a surprise that the most active actor to deliver cash assistance at that time was the government because the social protection system were still continuing functioning. 87%, and that was consistently across Ukraine, East and West, of the respondent were actually saying that they would still prefer cash over in-kind assistance. So showing that there were pockets, in particular in besieged area, where in-kind assistance was relevant, but otherwise markets were functioning, markets were resilient, and there was an, a need for cash assistance, and an increased need for cash assistance in light of the disruption of all the livelihood means that, um, that beneficiary were having. Only 7% of the respondents, and we're talking about 6,000 respondents in this survey nationwide, said that they did receive um, assistance. And the way they used this cash assistance was very diverse, rent, food, transportation in particularly, and hygiene products. And, and charity, by the way, charity as in sharing the assistance with other people in need was something that came up very strongly with 11% of the respondents. So... There's a tendency to think in either or terms about markets and cash and in-kind assistance. You know, either cash is useful because you can spend it or, you know, it's problematic because markets are disrupted. And cash in an account is useful whether or not you can spend it straight away. So in, in perceived areas, it's clearly important for in-kind assistance if markets are so disrupted. But it's also great to receive cash assistance because at some point you might be able to flee, you might need to pay a taxi driver, you might have to, um, you know, all sorts of things that cash can be useful for. The, the cash, assuming it doesn't disappear, sitting in your bank account, having some money there is a good thing. And so I think we need to think in terms of complementarities between cash and in-kind assistance in situations where markets are disrupted and both are needed. We hear that refugees fleeing to neighbouring countries like Poland, for example, are able to access the big four Polish social protection programs for families and children. So there's been some focus and commentary on how refugees will be taken care of in receiving countries. And obviously that's actually quite a positive story insofar as any of these stories are positive around this crisis. You mentioned before, though, internally displaced persons, IDPs, for example, in the disputed or the Russian-held areas like Donetsk and Luhansk, and some of the challenges that they have in claiming what really should be entitlements, or at least where, I guess, entitlements up to a certain point in their lives and, and, and then perhaps have become difficult to access. Just be interested if you can tell us a little bit more about what that means for the way we think about social assistance for refugees versus IDPs and, and how we come to grips with that challenge. Sure. So this is clearly, I mean, always a sensitive issue in, in the humanitarian crisis, but clearly as a humanitarian actor, you need to be concerned with civilians on all sides of conflict and therefore with civilians in, in Russian-occupied areas as well as uh, Ukrainian government-held areas. And Russia 
under international humanitarian law has responsibilities in occupying power and, and what assistance people in those areas are able to receive from who and how is, is just very unclear, partly because of the whole of war, partly because of restrictions on, on what Russia allows to be known. Internationally, humanitarian actors, I think, have a particular responsibility to think about those sets of issues because that's where some of the gaps and problems might be most important and where the Ukrainian government is obviously least able to fill those gaps. But it will be extremely difficult to do that in the, the operational agencies and the Gabrielian colleagues' tasks in trying to think about how to do that. Gabriele, what are the next steps for this emergency transfer that UNICEF is implementing in Ukraine? So for the time being, we have a time horizon of uh, six months, and we are looking at maintaining for sure for the next six months this uh, parallel response. In these six months, the two most important next steps that we want to move forward with are, one, as I mentioned earlier, invest uh, time and capacity and technical assistance with the Ministry of Social Policy to generate and to work together on those policies and procedures to make the system shock responsive and to be able to expand either vertical or horizontally, including by transferring part of our caseload. The other work stream is to make sure that we can update the design of our program in a way that is in line with the forthcoming needs assessment, including the multi-sector needs assessment that is currently being done by fellow humanitarian agencies in a way that UNICEF can maximize the impact of its resources to meet these needs, and particularly the needs of families uh, with children. I think that past that six-month horizon is going to be interesting to see whether we have the financial strength to look at other very vulnerable categories of the population, single-added household in the past, where those that had the largest income gap with uh, between their actual income and the subsistence level. And that was a, a category that we really wanted to target in a universal manner. But we're also very aware of how the war changed the demographic in the country and created many more single-added uh, families. And therefore, we will observe how that evolves and, and whether uh, we can do more or we can partner with the government uh, to do more with those families. Another interesting element is going to be to understand from needs assessment, the financial barriers to meet sectorial needs of health, education, WASH, and see whether uh, it makes sense to design certain program to have sector-specific objective and to use cash to address those financial barriers. These are the type of questions that I uh, believe we are going to ask ourselves in the next six months to adapt that program design. Paul, as we look across other recent and perhaps not so recent conflicts and protracted crises, are there lessons that we can learn from those other situations that can be applied to Ukraine? Or is the situation in Ukraine just too different? And if that's the case, then what do we do? Clearly, there's, there's always lessons, but Ukraine is clearly also unusual. So I think in, in many other places, the lessons are more about what hasn't been done as what has been done. You know, that the, there is, is more scope, I think, in many places to think about how humanitarian actors can link better with national systems, to think about how existing payments and benefits can be maintained, can be more resilient. 
and and that has happened has happened a bit in in Yemen through the emergency cash transfer project that is is supported by UNICEF and the World Bank with huge question marks over the sort of value of the transfer and, and who's being targeted because it's a pre-war beneficiary list. So Ukraine, in some ways, sort of presents an opportunity to to do it better this time, partly because. The, the government is viewed favorably by the donor governments, partly because the system is more developed. So in terms of future challenges, I guess I had two points. One is connectivity. So, so the sort of resilience and adaptiveness of the systems has in large part been because of the investments of the Ministry of Digital Transformation and the fact that people have been able to continue to use their phones to register online, to use bank accounts to receive payments. And that relies on electricity and internet access. And so just Thinking about how to maintain that resilience is obviously critically important. The second point is, is I think, a focus around the infrastructure of people as well as the infrastructure of systems. I think there's a focus in social texting to focus on payment systems and on ways in which payment systems can either be maintained or built in parallel. And that's important. It is partly what enables people to, to carry on getting assistance. But, but as important are the networks of, of social workers, of social centers, of, of the People at the front line who are helping to protect people, helping them to register people. Potentially, I think where support could be most helpful from the, the international at the very local level and enable frontline workers to continue doing their work. Gabriella, of course, UNICEF has also been responding to protracted crises in, in other contexts. Can you tell us a little bit about how you and your organization are applying those lessons in Ukraine? UNICEF is using a lot of the lesson learned that we draw from major humanitarian crises where we scaled up uh, cash transfer operations. One is, of course, the importance of being rapid and flexible uh, to adapt our risk appetite when it comes to operation, when you are, have to pay potentially hundreds of thousands of, um, of families. And therefore, we are setting up systems uh, that are capable to analyze this risk and to accept or mitigate this risk accordingly. And talking about risk, I believe that an important lesson learned is going to be acknowledging the great uh, social protection system that have been put in place in Ukraine, and therefore banking on this work and doing all that we can to transfer caseload to these systems, but also acknowledging that a conflict outcome is unpredictable. It, it's unpredictable nationwide, but also for pockets of geographic area of the country, and therefore being able to maintain this flexibility and this neutrality on the capacity to maintain a, an operational strength that would allow to keep on addressing the financial barriers of people in need is paramount. And also acknowledging that the operational expertise of parallel system can be very useful in reinforcing the shock responsiveness of social protection system as we move in different phases of the response. Yes, it's really interesting to consider, isn't it, to Paul's earlier point about the Russian-controlled areas of Ukraine. Should Russia be successful in, in controlling more of Ukraine or, or all of Ukraine, depending on the outcome of the current conflict? It really does, again, raise those questions about the extent to which the existing state systems will be able to be applied in those areas. It does underscore the need for humanitarian assistance or, or you know, the potential for that ongoing humanitarian channel to need to continue to play a role. 
I'll come in quickly on that. So, I mean, responsibilities are pretty clear, actually. So there's clear responsibility that international actors are committed to the state's primary responsibility to assist and protect. And, and occupying powers also have clear legal responsibilities to uh, assist and protect the citizens in areas that they control. So, so part of humanitarian action is always about encouraging both states and occupying powers to fulfil those responsibilities as best they can and to, to advocate for them to do it properly and to fill gaps where that isn't the case. In a sort of longer historical sense, one of the things demonstrated by Ukraine is, is the, the oddity of, of in the 90s and 2000s, the sort of international humanitarian system having set itself up in such a way that funds can largely only throw through large international organisations, even when that's not necessarily appropriate. Now, that didn't used to be the case. If you look at the response to drought in the 1980s in southern Africa, that was largely bilateral. It was Western donor governments giving budget support to African governments to enable them to import more food aid. And we've somehow created an international humanitarian system that is unable to directly support governments, even when that would make sense. And I think that is problematic. And, and, and Gabrielli has been dealing with the consequences of that problem in the, the fact that you couldn't directly support the government of Ukraine had to set up a parallel system. And so donors and others need to look at how they're constructing sort of risk and diligence and legal requirements and then what that means to how a system flows and what that means to their ability to live up to commitments to more directly support local and national actors. You know, if you can't get localization right in Ukraine, then it's deeply, deeply problematic. And it looks like we're not getting it right there to the extent that we should be. Yeah, just to chime in on localization and what uh, Paul was saying, I, I believe that the work with local government is going to be paramount even when it comes to cash assistance. I know that agencies like um, FAO are working closely with them on, on the cash element for farmers, particularly in light of uh, how, how important is farming in Ukraine as a livelihood activity. But even regardless of that, UNICEF does a lot of work with a network of what we call child-friendly cities, and, and mayors are a major source of change and, and potentially good social protection programming. I really think that there is an asset to leverage, uh, which is municipalities, uh, local government, even when it comes to social protection assistance, even though a lot of the programs are nationwide and, and delivered through national system, data sources can definitely become more localized and, and local government be scaled up to to, to be used to address the financial barriers of people in need. Yeah, I mean, I just want to absolutely say I completely agree with that. Mayors and municipalities and working with local government, and that's kind of what I was talking about with social workers and social work centres. Just, I think, for international humanitarian actors, having presence, so they have the right relationships and, and can build relationships of trust at the local level with those people, but directing support as, as directly as possible to those local actors, whether they're, they're governmental or non-governmental at the local level, will be the way forward. One thing that I wanted to add, um, I think that a unique feature of the Ukraine crisis is the unprecedented support of the private sector in mobilizing funds for the humanitarian response. Usually, we see a share of 80% of the funds coming from government, public sector, and 20% from the private sector. In the case of Ukraine, this was almost reversed. And the unicity of the private sector money is how flexible and how quick they may come in and how we have witnessed they were coming in for, for Ukraine. So this was very powerful and allowed us to set up system on, on a no-regret approach thanks to the flexibility of the funding coming in. And I think it's also a lesson learned, hopefully, for future crises 
where we can see that adequate sensitization of the public may lead to an increased private sector participation even in uh, humanitarian aid, even when it comes to humanitarian cash transfers. Gabriella and Paul, thank you so much. That's been a really useful insight, both in terms of what's happening in terms of programming right now to support people in Ukraine, but also to challenge us to think more broadly about how these systems can and should be working, particularly in developed contexts like Ukraine. So thank you both very much for your time today. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for hosting us. And good luck with the program, Gabriella. We like to end each episode of our show with our quick wins, where we highlight news and resources that you, our community, should know more about. I'll bring you our quick wins this week, focusing on other resources on social protection and the Ukraine conflict. In case you missed it, check out last month's bonus episode of this podcast on the Ukraine refugee crisis and the roles that social protection systems in receiving countries, along with humanitarian cash-based interventions, are playing in the response. Socialprotection.org has also hosted two great webinars on this topic this month, one about how Poland's big four social protection programs are being extended to Ukrainian refugees, and another looking at the ripple effects of the war in Ukraine and how social protection schemes around the world should be preparing for anticipated price shocks and hunger. In this episode, you heard from Paul Harvey from the Better Assistance in Crises or BASIC program. Paul and his colleagues, Bozena Sojka and Rachel Slater, have put out a brief looking at social protection and humanitarian response in Ukraine. And BASIC has also recently launched a bunch of preliminary research on social assistance in protracted crises that is well worth seeking out. And for those of you who have missed the World Bank's living paper on COVID response, the Social Protection and Jobs team at the bank has put out a new living paper tracking social protection responses in Ukraine and neighbouring countries. Thank you for joining me for the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org from the International Policy Centre for Inclusive Growth. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and leave a review. Back next month. See you then. Thank you.